From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, Ron Elving on the State of Debt Sailing Talks. And later, Dan Ronan was an 11-year-old altar boy when he was attacked by a priest after Mass. He didn't talk about it for more than 40 years except in prayer. When I kneel and I pray, I just ask the question, why did they let it go on? Why didn't these guys end up in the Cook County Jail where they belong instead of it going from one church to another? He tells us his story this hour. And later, a great British historian has written a thousand-page book called The World of Family History, and Simon Seabag Montefiore includes a 400-song playlist. We'll spin a few. First, our newscast. It's Saturday, May 27, 2023. Live from NPR News, I'm Giles Snyder. A deal over the debt ceiling is taking shape, but work requirements for people who get food stamps, Medicaid, or cash assistance remain a major sticking point. NPR's Jennifer Ludden reports that critics say those requirements would likely cut people off without boosting employment. Republicans say new or tougher work requirements can nudge people into the workplace, but Sharon Parrott of the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities says research has not shown that. When Arkansas briefly imposed Medicaid work requirements in 2018, a quarter of those affected were dropped from the program. But there wasn't any increase in employment. If that was the goal, that didn't happen. And of the people who lost coverage, lots of them actually were working or should have been exempt. As for cash assistance, she and others say those proposed work requirements would be especially difficult to meet, and they worry some states might just end the program. Jennifer Levin, NPR News, Washington. President Biden is spending the weekend at the Camp David presidential retreat, but before leaving the White House, he told reporters that the two sides are close to a debt ceiling deal, adding that he's very optimistic. Texas Republican Attorney General Ken Paxton is urging his supporters to turn up at the state capitol in Austin today to protest the expected impeachment vote against him. He says the proceedings are unjust. The fact that I was prohibited from presenting evidence to defend myself reveals that this shameful process was curated from the start as an act of political retribution. He says impeachment proceedings are part of an effort to stop him from continuing his crusade against the Biden administration. The state house is set to vote this afternoon after a committee controlled by Paxton's fellow Republicans adopted 20 articles of impeachment. Among other alleged crimes, Paxton is facing accusation of bribery and abuse of office. The Justice Department says two people have been arrested and charged for bribing an undercover agent as part of a scheme of allegedly led by the Chinese government. The two are accused of trying to get the IRS to go after an organization linked to the Falun Gong spiritual movement, which is banned in China. NPR's John Ruich has more. The Department of Justice says John Chen and Lin Feng were taking direction from a Chinese official to advance Beijing's campaign to repress and harass Falun Gong. The DOJ says they tried to have an entity linked to Falun Gong practitioners stripped of its tax-exempt status. According to a statement, they filed a whistleblower complaint and then paid $5,000 in bribes to a law enforcement officer posing as an IRS official. The charges, including bribery, carry sentences that range as high as 20 years. FBI Director Christopher Ray says the case demonstrates the Chinese government once again showing disregard for the rule of law and international norms. John Ruich, NPR News, Shanghai. And you're listening to NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu has signed off on the new electoral map passed by the city council. The plan will be presented to the court on Tuesday after the mayor gave her approval late yesterday. Attorney Jacob Love represents a coalition of progressive community groups. Love says the groups are analyzing the new map. What's most important to this coalition right now is ensuring that the city knows that the process was flawed and that it was rushed. The city council reshaped the districts after the original plan was rejected by a federal judge. Wu has said the city needed to approve new voting maps by Tuesday so the city can be ready for the fall elections. A group of veterans is among the hundreds of sailors competing in the annual Figawi race this weekend off Cape Cod. The 52nd annual regatta takes place between Hyannis and Nantucket. It includes teams of military veterans with the organization America's Warrior Partnership. The group works to raise awareness about veteran mental health and suicide, and it connects vets to local services. Jim Lorraine is the president of the organization and will be part of the cruise racing this weekend. When you're all together on a boat, hailing across to the Nantucket or off the coast of Hyannis, you start to build these bonds that are that endure beyond the duration of the race. The veterans that I sail with and have sailed with over the last three years, I stay in touch with almost constantly. The boats left Hyannis this morning. The New England Aquarium is gearing up for a busy summer. The aquarium's Suzanne Mattis says she is most excited about one particular new feature. I'm really looking forward to um, sitting in the beer garden. There's a beautiful view of the harbor and just soaking in the summer and all the activity and excitement happening on Central Wharf. That beer garden opens today. And starting tomorrow, the aquarium will extend its hours for the season. It's 57 degrees in Boston, sunny skies today with a high around 80. Lows in the mid-50s tonight. Tomorrow, sunny. Highs reaching the mid-80s. And Monday for Memorial Day, sunshine. Highs in the upper 60s. WBUR supporters include the Katina Foundation, supporting the Asylum Seeker Advocacy Project, providing more than 100,000 asylum seekers in the U.S. with community and legal support. Learn more at asylum.news. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Thank you for joining us. Negotiations continue on raising the federal debt ceiling so the U.S. government can continue to pay its expenses and the interest on bonds. President Biden left for Camp David last night. Sounded optimistic. I hope we'll have some clear evidence tonight before the clock strikes 12 that we have a deal. But it's very close. Then moments later, the White House put out a statement that sounded downright dire, charging Republicans were, quote, threatening to trigger an unprecedented recession. Let's turn to NPR senior editor and correspondent Ron Elvin. Ron, thanks for being with us. Good to be with you, Scott. This just doesn't add up. What do you make of of two conflicting statements? Believe it or not, both can be true. The two sides are far apart, especially on the work requirements for Medicaid and food stamps. On the other hand, they are talking. There seems to be a new serious about getting a deal. And at this point, the tough part of the exercise is going to be selling some of the members on the right and the left on the parts of the deal that they have sworn they will never vote for. Hmm. And yet they must. Treasury Secretary uh, Janet Yellen this week pushed back the X date 
that the country will default if uh, there's not an agreement. It was June 1, or as early as June 1, now it's June 5. A whole other four days uh, until a potential economic catastrophe. I, I, let me put it this bluntly. Why are members of Congress going home for a holiday weekend? It's fair to say the optics are less than optimal, Scott. But going home for a holiday, while it undercuts any sense of urgency, it's where the members want to be, telling their constituents what a great job they're doing and also telling them how unbending they are in the negotiations with the other party, the bad guys. And, of course, that may be good politics, uh, but it's not the best way to actually get a deal. There is a school of thought that says when the stakes are high, it's best to get the elected members out of town so that the staffs of the various offices, legislative and executive, oh. can find the language and work the numbers and get a deal that the members can approve when they get back to town, and we can hope for that. Also this week, uh, Twitter, I think it's fair to say, bungled. Uh Governor DeSantis's presidential campaign announcement, but his aides say he still raised $8.2 million in the first 24 hours. What does that tell us? There was a lot of glee in the media this week because the Twitter launch that was supposed to help both DeSantis and Twitter, which is to say Elon Musk, was a mess. But that may well have been a short-term story, which is to say it won't matter in a few months. Money, on the other hand, will. And it appears that money will not be a problem for Ron DeSantis. His backers include people with some of the deepest pockets in the GOP. He should have more than enough money to have saturation TV, as well as on-the-ground campaign staff in all the important primary and caucus states. Trump's money, by the way, is coming in in largely small amounts mm -hmm. from small donors who keep giving in response to his ongoing pleas for help. What... what seems to be the strategy for Governor DeSantis to try and win the Republican nomination. Does he does he just wait for Donald Trump to be indicted or to stumble or some new allegations of misconduct? Sometimes people challenge a front runner like Trump, seeing it as a chance to get on the ticket. And there are people running for president right now who might be glad to be the running mate for either Trump or DeSantis or even someone else. Uh, but that's not the scenario for DeSantis. Uh, Trump may be leading him by two to one in the polls right now, but DeSantis is the second choice of Republicans far more than any other candidate now in the race. He is the official Republican Plan B, the fallback if the party needs someone other than Trump or decides it wants someone other than Trump. And I point out here this week, the Washington Post reported new developments in the case of Trump's classified documents, the ones that were found in an FBI search of his Mar-a-Lago estate last year. Uh, William Barr, Trump's last attorney general, has said he thinks the documents case is the one Trump should be worried about the most. And Piers Ron Elvin, thanks so much for being with us. Talk to you thank soon. Thank you, Scott. Tomorrow, Turkish voters go to the polls in a runoff election between the two top vote-getters for president, the incumbent President Erdogan and veteran politician Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu. And Pierce Peter Kenyon reports that two issues have dominated the campaign, migrants from Syria and elsewhere, and extreme inflation. Standing on an Istanbul street corner, it's not hard to find people with strong opinions about this election. Like most of those interviewed for this story, 52-year-old Dilek didn't want her family name used. She's worried about possible official retaliation for speaking to foreign media about the upcoming vote. 
Talking to Delek, it's not hard to see how migrants, especially Syrians, became a hot election topic. Millions of Syrians fled conflict at home more than a decade ago, only to discover that Europe had closed the borders and was paying Turkey to keep them. Delek says she's had enough. She sees a country that's losing its national identity. Coming from home to here, I didn't see many Turks on the road. Syrians, Afghans, Arabs, that's all. Right and left they speak in foreign languages, no one speaks Turkish. And this won't get better, it will get worse. The more they vote, the more Tayyip will give them. Under Turkish law, migrants wouldn't be able to vote unless they became Turkish citizens. And judging by their campaign statements, both Erdogan and Kilic Durolu are committed to sending migrants home. Both have been endorsed by a Turkish ultranationalist party that's calling for tough anti-migrant measures. Gilic Dorolu has cut his self-imposed deadline for repatriating Syrian migrants from two years to one. The other big issue on a lot of minds is the economy, which has been staggering under the weight of soaring inflation. Standing outside a currency exchange office, I meet Osman, who's keeping an anxious eye on the exchange rate between the slumping lira and western currencies, something a lot of people are doing these days. Osman starts off talking about Kilic Dorolu, but quickly shifts to Erdogan. Though he doesn't use the president's name, he just calls him the man. I hope Kilic Dorolu will win, but I doubt he will. After 20 long years in power, somehow the man will still not let go. His past is dark, if you know what I mean. When asked what he thinks another five years in power for Erdogan would mean for the country, Osman doesn't hesitate, saying he doesn't think Erdogan's government would last for another five years. I don't think it will be for another five years. I think it will collapse in a year or two because the economy won't hold and the markets are bad. According to classic economic theory, it is not sustainable. But we will see. Many economists blame Erdogan's unorthodox economic views for the sagging economy's woes. Analyst Selim Koro at the Economic Policy Research Foundation of Turkey says if Erdogan does win, people inside Turkey and in capitals around the world will have a pretty good idea of what to expect, a deepening of the vision for Turkey's future that Erdogan has spent two decades shaping. He has a very clear, I think, political vision for Turkey, which is a very sort of pious, homogenous, hierarchical place that's fiercely competitive. That's the spirit he's looking for, a very competitive nation on the global scale. On Sunday, Erdogan will find out if voters still support that vision and whether they still think he's the one to deliver it. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul. By the time Tina Turner released her hit song, What's Love Got to Do With It, in 1984, she'd already seen her career rise and fall. The song had been written by two British guys, Terry Britton and Graham Lyle, who offered it to Cliff Richard, the Brit rock and roller who turned it down. Few more singers, including Donna Summer, reportedly considered it for a while. Maybe they found the lyrics a little hard to put across. What's love got to do, got to do with it? Seems to ask, am I feeling love or something dangerous? Will I just get hurt again? What does love actually do for anyone anyway? As it's so piercingly phrased and left to hang in our minds, who needs a heart when a heart can be broken? By this time, Tina Turner was 44 years old. She'd already been playing gigs on what used to be known as the Nostalgia Circuit, where she sang old hits in casinos and county fairs. 
What you hear in her voice and what's love got to do with it is the hard rock of what she'd lived through, growing up in the cotton fields of Nutbush, Tennessee, singing in a church choir and later in nightclubs and working as a nurse's aide. She got a job singing back up for Ike Turner, then became his co-star, married him in Tijuana, and after years of abuse, escaped him in Dallas, bruised and bloodied with just 36 cents and a gas card in her pocket. It scares me to feel this way, she sings in a voice that's rugged, raw, and raspy, as if being pulled phrase by phrase and still warm, straight from her heart. You hear her hurt and wariness as she asks, What's love but a second-hand emotion? What's love got to do with it won three Grammys and marked one of the great comebacks of music history. By the time she died this week at the age of 83, Tina Turner had a happy second marriage to a German music executive named Erwin Bach and lived in France and Switzerland. She received a Kennedy Center honor and was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame twice. Tina Turner once told an interviewer, People think my life has been tough, but I think it's been a wonderful journey. The older you get, the more you realize. It's not what happened. It's how you deal with it. Who needs a heart when a heart can be broken again and again? Tina Turner moved us to raise our hands and open our hearts, even when it hurts. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 818. Coming up in about 20 minutes, you'll get the story from North Carolina's coast where a volunteer spent a day tallying terrapins. Coming to City Space Thursday, June 22nd, Sam Sanders, Saeed Jones, and Zach Stafford conduct a live taping of their hit podcast, Vibe Check. For tickets, go to wbur.org slash events. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at wbur.org slash cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders, movers, and changemakers to close opportunity gaps, advance equity, and power a better Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. And Charles River Apparel's warehouse event, June 2nd and 3rd in Sharon, partial proceeds support the Wellness Warriors, an active paddling support group for cancer survivors. I'm Joel Snyder with these headlines. The White House and Republican negotiators are heading into this Memorial Day weekend without a deal on raising the government's debt ceiling. Some details were hashed out this week, but key issues remain, including work requirements for federal assistance programs such as food stamps and Medicaid. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton is facing an impeachment vote in the Texas legislature. The state House is set to vote this afternoon after a committee adopted 20 articles 
rules of impeachment against him this week. And Vice President Kamala Harris is set to become the first woman to deliver the commencement address at West Point today. I'm Giles Snyder. This is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. And from Cunard, sailing the transatlantic crossing between New York and Southampton, England on Queen Mary II. With a commitment to White Star service, fine dining, and entertainment, QNAR.com slash crossing. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Russia's war in Ukraine has led to vast destruction and the deaths of tens of thousands of soldiers and civilians. It has also had some effects in other parts of the former Soviet Union. For the past three decades, Russia has tried to mediate a border conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Yet on a recent visit to Armenia, NPR's Moscow correspondent Charles Maines found that Kremlin's influence is beginning to wane. A note to listeners, this story includes the sound of gunfire. It's been nearly three years since the most recent full-scale war between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Six weeks of bitter fighting in 2020 saw Azerbaijan seize back most of Nagorno-Karabakh, the majority ethnically Armenian enclave inside Azerbaijan that's been the source of tensions between the countries for decades. Some argue Armenia's defeat fundamentally upended life and long-held geopolitical assumptions in the South Caucasus. The 44 days war changed this country a lot. Tigran Hizmalyan is the head of Armenia's pro-European integration party, he says the war shattered Armenians' long-held illusion they could rely on protection from Russia. Because it became crystally clear that we have no future as a Russian proxy. Hizmalan argues a majority of Armenians feel Russia failed to live up to its obligations to the country, and by extension, ethnic Armenians living in Nagorno-Karabakh under a shared regional security pact akin to NATO's Article 5. Instead, Moscow played mediator and settled into a peacekeeping role, one that's only grown more complicated in the past year. The war in Ukraine changed everything. Tigran Gagorian is a political analyst with the Regional Center for Democracy and Security in the Armenian capital Yerevan. He says with the Kremlin distracted and militarily bogged down in Ukraine, the authorities in Azerbaijan are pushing to lock in additional gains at Armenia's expense. They perfectly understand that Russia will do its utmost not to get involved in another crisis somewhere else because they need to concentrate all their resources. Gregorian points to a confluence of events now working in Azerbaijan's favor, most critically Russia's growing economic dependence on Azerbaijan and its closest ally, Turkey, as the Kremlin seeks to lessen the impact of Western sanctions. That's allowed Azerbaijan to press its leverage, most notably with a military blockade of the Lone Corridor linking Armenia to Nagorno-Karabakh, despite the presence of Russian peacekeepers. Azerbaijan sees a unique window of opportunity to actually exert military pressure on Armenia and to uh, extort concessions that could be impossible to extort in different circumstances. All of this has put Russia in a difficult spot, looking ineffectual in a region it's historically dominated and once again refusing aid to an Armenian ally it swore to defend. 
This week, Armenia's prime minister publicly threatened to abandon his country's security pact with Russia altogether, a once unthinkable affront to the Kremlin, says Vladimir Sotnikov of Russia's higher school of economics in Moscow. At the end of the day, yes, we can say that uh, Russia's influence uh, in uh, this uh, Azeri-Armenian conflict in Nagorno-Karabakh, in particular, and in the Caucasus uh, in general, somehow is waning. Amid the growing power vacuum, notes Sotnikov, the U.S. and Europe are pushing their own peace initiatives and economic agendas. If Russia will be somehow excluded from this process, will be a, a big irritation. So we need just guarantees that the United States and the European Union wouldn't be finding themselves in the Caucasus. Russian President Vladimir Putin seems aware of the danger and is looking to restore Russian influence, even as some Armenians say they've moved on. In this video posted online, a civilian defense group known as VOMA, an Armenian abbreviation for the art of survival, holds military trainings in anticipation of the next war with Azerbaijan. Arshak Vartanov, an instructor with VOMA, tells me he's not putting his faith in either Russia or the West. The defeat in 2020, he says, taught Armenians a hard lesson to count on themselves. In fact, in Armenia's current struggles, Vartanov sees parallels with Ukraine's fight against its larger and more powerful neighbor. The Ukrainians received outside help only once they proved they could defend themselves, that they could fight, says Vartanov. Why, he adds, should it be any different here? Charles Maines, NPR News, Yerevan, Armenia. This Memorial Day weekend, we remember a combat medic, a Navy corpsman who later served as a rapper. It's time to stand back up. All my veterans, man, Army, Marine Corps, Navy, Air Force, Coast Guard. Get up, you know. George Michael Todd Jr., Doc Todd, deployed with Marines during fierce fighting in Afghanistan's Helmand province. After returning home, he struggled with PTSD, but turned to music, putting out an album, Combat Medicine. His message to fellow veterans, you are not alone. Doc Todd died earlier this month. We'll have the story of his life. Tomorrow on Weekend Edition Sunday with Aisha, you can listen by asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your station by name. A report from the Illinois Attorney General's Office released this week says 451 Catholic priests abuse at least 1,997 children across the state between 1950 and 2019. Previously, just two Roman Catholic dioceses in Illinois had released lists of substantiated allegations of abuse, saying just 103 priests or religious brothers had abused children during those seven decades. We want to talk about one case for the next few minutes with the person who uh, lived through that abuse. St. Jerome's Parish, West Lunt Avenue in Chicago, just after Mass one day in 1971, officiated by Father Thomas Gannon. One of the altar boys was an 11-year-old named Dan Ronan. Dan today is a journalist in Washington, D.C., and my old friend. He joins us in our studios. Dan, thanks for being willing to talk to us. Wouldn't want to talk to anybody else but you. Ah, well... Look, this is going to be rough, um, as you know. What went through your mind when the report came out this week? 
uh, a sense of resignation that I knew it was coming, but also a sense of relief that uh, finally there is some acknowledgement, albeit forced by the Attorney General of the state of Illinois to, to bring this forward, that uh, these things happened at a much larger level than anybody was previously acknowledging. What happened that day after Mass? It was late in the year, dark, and we had passed uh, daylight saving time, so mm -hmm. the clocks had been changed around, so it got dark really early. Uh, I had been the only altar boy. The other kid didn't show up that day. Uh, I've never been able to figure out if it's because he knew who the priest was and mm. thought maybe he was a little sketchy. But uh, I was back in the sanctuary in this big, ornate church that we've been in. We know how large it is. And uh, my grandfather had actually been an usher that day at that mass and was, you know, doing the collection plate thing. And after mass, uh, I was cleaning up. And I should tell our listeners that at the time, I had a broken arm. I had broken my arm playing youth football for the school team. And uh, I didn't have a particularly good mass. I mean, it was difficult to move things around, and there was only one of me. So I had kind of had some difficulties. And uh, we were in the sanctuary, and I was removing my vestments and uh, getting, uh, getting changed. And uh, he came in and was belligerent and was uh, abusive, vulgar. And the next thing I know, he grabbed me and uh, started to pull down his pants and uh, shoved my hand into his... Uh, we all know where this is going. And uh, I don't know how long it went on. I, I froze and uh, locked up for a while. And like I said, time just sort of stopped. Mm. And uh, I sensed the, a moment of uh, an opportunity to get out, and I did. Did you tell anyone? Not until a couple years ago. I mean, I, I, I told... A couple people. There were maybe two or three people. My ex-wife knew about it. Uh, my kids, eventually I shared to them. But I, I lived with it and tried to deal with it. The way I can describe it, Scott, it's like taking a, a beach ball, mm -hmm. filling the beach ball full of air and holding this thing, which doesn't weigh anything, trying to hold this thing underwater. And you hold it underwater and you hold it underwater and you hold it underwater. No matter what you do, the thing wants to pop to the top. And it kept popping to the top. And finally, about, uh, I guess about three or four years ago, uh, when the, the stuff came out about Philadelphia and some of the other archdiocese, they started coming out with these stories. I, I Googled his name. Uh, Father Thomas Gannon. Uh, he Jesuit. Had, Jesuit. Had an honored career, sociology department, Loyola of Chicago, and later Georgetown. Georgetown. Yeah. And so I Googled his name and found this story in the Georgetown paper. And I remember the headline was something like Georgetown faculty or ex-Georgetown faculty member linked to sex scandal or whatever it was. And I, I looked at it and I looked at it and I looked at it and I, I just said, I got to do something. I can't, I can't keep, I can't keep fighting this. Um, it's going to sound incredibly naive. Why didn't you tell your parents? Why didn't you tell teachers? Oh, my parents and my grandparents. Why didn't you call the cops? Because that's not the era we lived in. Yeah. Priests were put on a pedestal. Uh, that's not what we did. And I was 11 years old. I was just a little kid. I was just a, a sixth grader. I mean, sixth graders don't report that a priest has sexually molested them. They don't tell their teachers. If it happened now, thankfully, the, the, the procedures, the policies have all changed. But that wasn't the way it was done. My, both my parents were devout Catholics. My grandfather was... On the parish council, he was the chief usher at, at St. Jerome for many years, well-respected guy in Rogers Park. 
uh, I just I couldn't do it. You you have met with the Cardinal of Chicago. Mm-hmm. How'd that go? We talked for two hours on a Saturday back uh, last fall. I, I thought that uh, he was honest. He was very forthcoming with me, but I don't know that he'll ever be successful cleaning it up. I hope he is, but I don't know that he will. Will you be at church Sunday? Not this Sunday. Maybe maybe, maybe some Sunday, but not this Sunday. But sometimes I go, and I go very infrequently, and I just sort of just... I, I ask the question when I, when I kneel and I pray, I just ask the question, why did a supposedly loving God, a benevolent God, who we believe gave his own son, why did they allow these people to get into the into the system? Who failed? Who and then who who not only failed but who who covered it up? Who covered up the failure and why did they let it go on? Why didn't they drum these guys out? Why didn't these guys end up in the Cook County jail where they belong instead of it going from one church to another? Do you have any legal recourse? Right yeah, now? I did. Uh in this I'm glad you brought this up. I uh had a, an attorney, and I did reach a, a settlement with the with the archdiocese and the Jesuits uh, a couple years ago. But the state of Illinois has a very restrictive statute of limitations law, mm-hmm. and we were never able to get around the statute of limitations law uh, to pursue it in court. And it would have been a slam dunk. It would have been a slam dunk, but we never could because the law was what it is. The state of Maryland, where I live now, has changed their law, and hopefully Illinois will do the same thing at some point and change the law and make it easier for for folks to, you know, the money's never going to change anything. You know, a check doesn't change anything. It doesn't doesn't make me whole. It doesn't turn back the clock 50 some odd years. It doesn't do any of that. It just gives you some compensation, but they need to change the law. This is another one of those difficult questions. Has it made it hard for you over the years to uh, to love, to care? Yeah, and and I don't let a lot of people get close to me. I mean, I have now, you know, in this portion of my life I have. I, I've, you know, I have done that. But I put up a lot of barriers. I put up a lot of defenses, a lot of walls, very much on a surface level. I'm a very personable person. But I don't let a lot of people, even today, behind, you know, behind the wall because there's a lot of fear there. Fear of? Oh, gosh. Uh, fear of Fear of not measuring up. Mm-hmm. Fear of being humiliated again, fear of being abandoned, uh, fear of people not listening and not believing. I mean, what happened to me and all these other thousands of young people like us? I mean, we were humiliated. We were uh, treated with such disrespect by a church that was supposed to love and cherish us and honor us, and they didn't. And then they covered it up. Yeah. They covered it up, Scott. Dan Ronan, thanks so much. It's my pleasure. Nobody I'd rather talk to, Scott. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Scientists want to know more about a little turtle called the Terrapin, so they've asked volunteers to help count them. Surely at least one of them is named after B.J. Lederman, who does our theme music. Kelly Knoyer, with member station WHQR in Wilmington, North Carolina, went kayaking to try to spot the marsh creatures. 
It's a short ferry ride to get to Bald Head Island, a conservation area at the mouth of the Cape Fear River, where I plan to paddle around counting turtles. This is the annual Terrapin Tally, a citizen science initiative. Yeah, so they're super, super pretty. Elena Kelly is with the Bald Head Islands Conservancy and joined this year's tally. Their shells have, on each of the scoots, or like the scales almost, it's like rings of light and dark, and then their actual skin is like pale silvery white with polka dots on them. Terrapins live in the brackish waters of the intracoastal waterway between the barrier islands and the mainland. They're small, six to nine inches, and just barely poke above the waves when they come up for air. Sarah Finn is a state biologist who helps train volunteers to spot the turtles from kayaks. So their heads are only a few inches long, um, so you're looking for just a little brief blip of a head poking out of the water and then going back down. Terrapins used to be really common. Their range runs from Cape Cod to the Gulf of Mexico. But Finn says they were hunted heavily in the early 20th century. Back uh, before the Great Depression, they were considered a delicacy item. Um, turtle soup uh, was served in the White House under President Taft. That changed with the Great Depression, when no one could afford to eat the reclusive turtles. And Prohibition kept sherry out of restaurants, which is a key ingredient in turtle soup recipes. Although economic and cultural changes took turtles off American menus, the terrapin population has struggled to recover ever since. It takes generations for their populations to rebound. In North Carolina, it's now listed as a species of special concern. The state wants more data, and that's where the volunteers come in. In North Carolina, we have extensive area of marsh habitat. Hope Sutton helped start the Terrapin Tally nine years ago when she realized how hard it would be to get the data she needed. I mean, we're talking, what, it's like 300,000 acres. So for any single researcher or small research team, that's just, you know, that's an inconceivable number of hours that you would have to spend out there doing surveys. I only covered two and a half miles in a few hours, but I was determined to see the tiny terrapin heads popping out of the water. After about 50 minutes, I got my chance. I think I might have seen a terrapin. I just saw like this little black dot poke out of the, I think I just saw it again. I'm using an app to share data. It has a geo tracker. Okay, so filling out the survey, Bald Head Island, Village Creek East, current time. 10.59 a.m. I'm just one of 150 volunteers who joined the Terrapin Tally this year. And now even my single turtle sighting is part of official scientific data. For NPR News, I'm Kelly Knoyer in Wilmington, North Carolina. Weekend Edition is a production of NPR News, which is solely responsible for its content. Like a story you heard on this or another NPR program? Share it with a friend at npr.org. While there, you can also hear stories you missed, enjoy expanded content, or connect to your favorite member station. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu has signed off on the new electoral map passed by the city council. The plan will be presented to the court on Tuesday. The city council reshaped the districts after the original plan was rejected by a federal judge. 
Wu has said the city needed to approve new voting maps by Tuesday so the city can be ready for fall elections. Salem officially swears in the city's new mayor today, Dominic Pangallo, won in a special election after former mayor Kim Driscoll left the post to become the lieutenant governor. Pangallo previously served as Driscoll's chief of staff. It is 61 degrees in Boston, plenty of sunshine today with a high around 80 degrees. Lows overnight in the mid-50s. You can expect sunny skies tomorrow with highs reaching the mid-80s. And Monday for Memorial Day, sunshine, highs in the upper 60s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help animal welfare organizations throughout the Northeast. OceanStateJobLot.com. Xfinity Internet. Announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. And BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. The new movie, You Hurt My Feelings, explores the dangers of honesty. Like, should you really say what you think about someone else's work? If you're an actor and someone comes up and says, I'm proud of you, you know they hated it and your performance. <laughs> we talked to stars Julia Louis-Dreyfus and Michaela Watkins, and we have some laughs. Sunday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 8 on WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners, available in more than 25 flavors, including watermelon and pineapple, in stores or delivered from hintwater.com. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Parts of the United States are beginning to change their attitude toward psychedelic drugs. While the drugs remain illegal at the federal level, two states and more than a dozen cities have passed laws to decriminalize some substances. There is research research that shows that psilocybin, MDMA, mescaline, and some other psychedelics can be effective treatments for depression and other conditions. Dina Pritchett reports from Portland, Oregon. The state is setting up the nation's first-ever rules for administering psilocybin. The PsyCon convention has billed itself as the forefront of psychedelic business. There are booths offering insurance, tax planning. We're here to make sure that IRS does not come down on these people so they can get their businesses off the ground. There are landlords renting out space at soon-to-be-licensed service centers. We're taking a previous dentist office and we're creating 15 spaces for individual journeys. There are even booths selling psilocybin strains. We have the Aresia, we have the Golden Teachers, which is probably the most popular. To be clear, these are just the spores, not the grown mushrooms. Oregon's regulatory model will only dispense psilocybin in licensed service centers. Although, somebody probably should have told that to the vendor selling chocolate bars. We actually infuse chocolates with uh, psychedelic mushrooms. This current moment in Oregon feels a bit like the Wild West. But Angela Albee, who directs the state health authority's psilocybin services branch, says they're developing a new paradigm. 
we're moving away from this framework that's rooted in the war on drugs, which has been harmful to so many people, and shifting into a health policy framework that really centers client safety and access. And Oregon is building that framework from the ground up, with research and meetings and 90 pages of rulemaking. They're covering everything from dosage to service center accessibility to when the drug might be contraindicated. There are four license types, manufacturers, laboratories that test products, the service centers, and then the licensed facilitators. Those are the professionals helping people while they take the drug. And with thousands waiting to access psilocybin, Oregon's going to need a lot of them. Rebecca Martinez founded Alma Institute in Portland, which just welcomed its first cohort of facilitators. By the time these students get to their fieldwork, Oregon service centers will likely have opened their doors. But Martinez says the training programs that opened earlier this year had to get creative. Some will actually travel to Mexico and work with folks where there are actually legal avenues to consume mushrooms. Some folks have gone with the ketamine route. Others are doing role playing and breath work or meditation. There have been places like the California Institute for Integral Studies that developed curricula for psychedelic facilitation even before this wave of legalization. And Martinez says that work has influenced what they're doing in Oregon, along with some other influences. That was always sort of the golden question, is how do you teach something that you can't admit to having the skills to do? (laughs) When psilocybin was outlawed over 50 years ago, these skills went underground, and research was limited. There were some published methodologies, but most of them were um, like the DEA and criminal labs. Bjorn Fritsche is the senior chemist at Rose City Laboratories, which is Oregon's first, and currently only, licensed psilocybin lab. He grinds up mushrooms from a handful of licensed growers and tests them for potency and strain according to protocols he had to create. For a scientist, it's an exciting challenge. But as a scientist, Fritsche wants to check his data against other labs, like chemists usually do in what's called a round robin. I would love to do something like that. There is unfortunately no other labs, and uh, you can't do a round robin test with yourself. Psychedelics are something people have done, not just underground or in clinical trials, but throughout history. And as Oregon navigates this bumpy new path, through the lab, the conventions, the trips themselves, they hope to build on that history and to help a lot of people. For NPR News, I'm Dina Pritchep in Portland, Oregon. You can already imagine the movie pitch, Cupcake Bear. Staffers at a Taste by Spellbound Bakery in Avon, Connecticut, were loading a delivery van with some of their wares when they heard a scream from an employee, there's a bear in the garage. Miriam Stevens, the bakery owner, wrote in an Instagram post that they tried to scare off the bear with shouts, but hungry bears may be indifferent to verbal intimidation. Bear stayed long enough to eat about 60 cupcakes. No record of what flavors the bear may have favored and some coconut cake. Bakery staff say the bear was finally induced to leave when they honked the horn of a car. But how do they know he just wasn't full? Was setting out to find, hmm, 60 cups of coffee. There is surveillance video of the bear's bakery visit, but no photos on their Instagram post. We do not have video or pictures, wrote Miriam Stevens. That was the last thing on our mind. Simon Sebag Montefiore's majestic new history, The World, 
tells the story of the human family through families, the Caesars and Borgias, Kims and Tudors, Roosevelt's, Habsburg, Saud, and families that are similar in kind, Plato and Confucius, Gandhi and Kenyatta, Empress Wu and King Alara, a thousand pages of plagues, pandemics, and crimes against humanity, along with staggering survival and achievements. And you could read the whole book while listening to a playlist. Please allow me to introduce myself. I'm a man of wealth and taste. More than 400 songs from the Rolling Stones. Bob Marley, Bob Dylan, Aretha Franklin, the Commodores, and many more. The eminent historian Simon Sebag Montefiore joins us. I gather you believe Sympathy for the Devil is the best song about history. I've put it as my number one. The brilliant way it's written, the trope of an unknown narrator that we, whom we discover, whose identity is revealed, and who plays a role in many of the most terrible atrocities of the 20th century. I think it's one of the best written rock songs of all time. What is this playlist? provide for our perspective on history? Well, part of the fun thing about writing a family history is to get a feel of the way people lived, which is not just empires rising and falling, battles and pandemics, but also how they ate, how they dressed, and of course, what kind of music they listened to. And so I thought, God, it'd be really fun to have a playlist of all the great history songs, which I define as History song is either about a historical character or characters, or it's a song mm-hmm. that becomes the theme of a historical event. Southern trees. More music. Nina Simone's version of Strange Fruit. Barren strange fruit. Blood on the leaves. And blood at the roots Black bodies swinging in the southern breeze What do we hear in this song? I mean, this is a song, this is a terrifying, terrible, atrocious narrative of a lynching in the South. It tells part of the story of America, of the Jim Crow years of America. And slavery is a big part of this world history. Um, Atlantic slavery, but also other slave trades in in East Africa, Trans-Saharan, and the Mediterranean Black Sea slave trade as well. You know, the great thing about writing a family history of the world is that you can cover these things in special ways. So some of the families, as you mentioned, are royal families, political families, families of power, but some are enslaved families too. Then the sudden smell of burning flesh. I feel the need to cite the author of the song, Abel Mirapol. You know that story? Yeah, I mean, he's a, he, he was yeah. Jewish. Uh, Abel Mirapol adopted Michael and Robbie Mirapol, who had been born to Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. Amazing. Amazing. in another direction entirely. 
scholarly contribution does or do Herman's Hermits make? Some of these songs are extremely dark and almost unbearable, like Strange Fruit. And some are just outrageous fun. I mean, you've got to be ready for all sorts of changes of tone. You know, one of the things that's fun about this is not just to have songs that mention historical characters. I mean, one of my favorites is The Stranglers, No More Heroes. Whatever happened to Liam Trotsky? He got an ice pick that made his ears burn. That's another wonderful one, too. And there are songs about serious things. Mm -hmm. You know, Barai, the beautiful song, Iranian song from today. برای توی کوچه رخصیدن برای ترسیدن به وقت بوسیدن برای خواهرم خواهرت خواهرامون There are songs from Ukraine for example Stefania mamo mamo Stefania rozkvitaye pole abo nasibiye There are songs from the Soviet Union in World War II Rozkvitali yabuni so I hope that one finds as much variety here as one does in the book, as one does in world history. It was the third of June, another sleepy, dusty Delta day. From following your book tour, I understand just this week you were at the Tallahatchie Bridge. I was at the Tallahatchie Bridge. Bobby Gentry is in the is in the list, of course. Of course, I stopped the car and just had a moment. And Mama hollered at the back door, y'all remember to wipe your feet. And then she said, I got some news this morning from Choctaw Ridge. Today, Billy Joe McAllister jumped off the Tallahatchie Bridge. And I was just in Graceland, too. And I think Elvis is one of those characters. For about 50 years, the great pop stars were like, and I'm slightly exaggerating here, but not completely, I think, were like mm -hmm. the Grand Dukes, the Cardinals, maybe the great artists of bygone eras. Some of them are essential for a world history. So we've got Frank Sinatra, we've got Bowie, we've got Elvis, of course. And the mm -hmm. Stones and the Beatles are all really part of the development of, of commerce, of capitalism, of a single American culture, of American domination of world culture. Frank Sinatra is a classic example. He sung at the 1946 summit meeting of the Mafia, who are in the book, Lucky Luciano and Bugsy Siegel and Maya Lansky. He was friends with Jack Kennedy. He introduced Kennedy to Marilyn Monroe and Judith Exner. And Marilyn Monroe's version of Happy Birthday, Mr. President, is also on the playlist. Happy birthday to you. Absolutely. I mean, she's in the book. Her singing that song is the sort of climax of Camelot in many ways, and the Kennedys are a big part of this story. And in case one thinks dynasties are over, in most of the rest of the world, for all sorts of reasons, people are returning to dynasties, to clans, 
to families of different sorts. There's a Marcos back in power in the Philippines. There's a Marcos back in power. There was a Kenyatta back in power. And then there are proper monarchies which are riding high. Look at the Saudi monarchy, for example. And then there are republic monarchies like the Kims of North Korea, the Assads, and many, many others who are um, trying to create actual hereditary dynasties like monarchies. People often ask me, who's the most powerful family in the world? And of course, the answer has to be the Kim family of North Korea because they have the ultimate heirloom, a nuclear arsenal. You're right in the world. History shows that humans have a, a limitless ability to destroy and an ingenious ability to recover. So the last song I want to ask you about is, of course, by a Chicagoan, Sam Cooke. Don't know much about history. Don't know much biology. What wisdom from history or about history is in this song? The reason why I have it in the playlist is not just that it mentions history and it is the most beautiful song. It's also optimistic about human nature. And there's something else. I don't know much about history. You may find this surprising for someone who's just written... A thousand um, pages, yes, right. We often revere history as propulsive, as almost sacred in its authority. And in fact, history doesn't matter that much. What really matters is how people want to live now. And that's the difference between Ukraine, for example, and President Putin. President Putin is living in the age of Catherine the Great and Prince Potemkin and Nicholas I. And the Ukrainians want to live now in freedom. And that's the theme of that beautiful song by Sam Cooke. Simon Sebag Montefiore, his new book, The World, the Family History of Humanity, accompanied by a playlist on Spotify. Thanks so much for being with us. Always lovely to talk to you. Don't know much about algebra. Don't know what a slide rule is for. But I do know what it one is to. And if this one could be with you, what a wonderful world this would be. Now I don't claim to be. Oh, beautifully said. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Staples, with supplies to get business done, no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com. And from Proven Winners Color Choice, offering flowering shrubs and evergreens to help gardeners express their creativity outdoors. At garden centers nationwide. ProvenWinnersColorChoice.com slash NPR. This is NPR. Thanks for listening to Weekend Edition here on 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 61 degrees in Boston, plenty of sunshine today with a high around 80. WBUR supporters include Simone Lee at the ICA. CY Lee was named one of Time's Top 100, now on view, icaboston.org. Babson College. Hone your business skills at the school ranked number one in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report. Build your success story at babson.edu success. And Soaring Hawk Meditation Center, celebrating the present moment with a new exhibit on mindfulness, located in Littleton, Mass. More at soaringhawkcenter.com.
On last week's Wait Wait, Adam Burke agreed with those millennials who speak in fake British accents to lower their stress. Adam, you're Irish. I'm sure you're soothed by the sound of a British accent. <laughs> yeah, I, I use it to go to sleep. It's the whitest noise. <laughs> I'm Peter Sagal. Don't drift off when you listen to this week's show from New Orleans with special guest John Goodman. Join us for the News Quiz from NPR. Today at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, the debate over work requirements on some federal programs and how it may affect negotiations over raising the debt ceiling. Also, what the census shows about LGBTQ plus citizens and what's missing in that data. Then Jeffrey Hinton, the computer scientist with a blunt warning about the technology he helped create. These things could get more intelligent than us and could decide to take over. And we need to worry now about how we prevent that happening. This hour, his worries about artificial intelligence. And then the Denver Nuggets finally strike gold in the NBA. First, our newscast. Today is Saturday, May 27, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. President Biden is spending the weekend at the Camp David presidential retreat, but before leaving the White House aboard Marine One, he told reporters that Democrats and Republicans are close to a debt ceiling deal. With regard to the debt limit, things are looking good, very optimistic. The White House and Republican negotiators are heading into this Memorial Day weekend, though, without an agreement. Some details were hashed out this week, but key issues remain, including work requirements for federal assistance programs such as food stamps and Medicaid. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said yesterday that unless Congress raises a limit by June 5th, the government will not be able to pay its bills. Vice President Kamala Harris will make history today. She's set to give remarks at West Point's graduation ceremony, making her the first woman commencement speaker in the Military Academy's 221-year history. NPR's Emma Bowman has more. Vice presidents are frequent commencement speakers at U.S. military academies. Last year, Kamala Harris gave remarks to Coast Guard Academy graduates. The year before that, she became the first female commencement speaker at the Naval Academy. But on Saturday, Harris will become the first woman to speak at a West Point commencement, even though women have been graduating from the school for 43 years. When asked why it's taken so long for a woman to speak at the commencement, a West Point spokesperson said that the role usually rotates among senior leadership within the academy's chain of command, which includes the president, vice president, and defense department officials. And historically, men have largely held those positions. Emma Bowman, NPR News. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton is calling on his supporters to protest a vote scheduled for today in the state legislature that could lead to his ouster. The Republican-led Texas House is set to vote this afternoon on whether to impeach Paxton over allegations including bribery and abuse of public trust. 
Paxton calls the impeachment proceedings political theater. Russian authorities have launched new criminal charges against the jailed-up uh, Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. The new charges could keep the Kremlin's fiercest critic in jail for decades, as NPR's Charles Maines reports from Moscow. According to documents posted to a Moscow city court website, Navalny faces a slew of new charges tied to alleged extremist activities and rehabilitation of Nazi ideology. Navalny and his supporters have dismissed the charges as absurd and called them retribution from a Kremlin intent on keeping Navalny out of political life in Russia over the long haul. Navalny is already serving out a nine-year sentence on fraud and embezzlement charges widely seen as politically motivated. The new case comes amid an intense crackdown on critics of the Kremlin's invasion of Ukraine which Navalny has denounced in messages issued from prison. His latest trial is scheduled to begin next week. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. It is day two of Boston Calling at the Harvard Athletic Complex in Alston. And this is where everybody dances. That's the song Everlong by last night's headliner Foo Fighters. Last year, the band canceled its tour, including a planned performance at Boston Calling following the death of drummer Taylor Hawkins. Today's headliners at Boston Calling, the Lumineers and Alanis Morissette. Relatives of the late Rick Hoyt and Dick Hoyt are still holding a planned five-mile road race fundraiser today. Rick Hoyt died this past Monday at the age of 61. His father, Dick Hoyt, had pushed Rick in a wheelchair to finish the Boston Marathon 32 times. Dick Hoyt died two years ago. Rick's brother, Russ Hoyt, says the family agreed the race should go forward. We all came to the consensus that not only would Rick want us to do this, but if he was here and we were even considering not doing it, he would be setting us all straight and saying, this is going to happen, this needs to happen. The race begins at 10 a.m. in Hopkinton. 81 state beaches and waterfronts are open for the season starting today. That includes lifeguard services at many of the sites. 13 spray decks also are opening today. Tonight, it's another must-win game for the Boston Celtics. They face the Heat in Miami in Game 6 of the Eastern Conference playoffs. Miami leads the best-of-seven series three games to two. In Arizona last night, the Red Sox beat the Diamondbacks 7-2. to two. They play again tonight. In Foxborough tonight, the Revs host the Chicago Fire. It's 61 degrees in Boston with sunshine today and a high around 80. Tonight, lows in the mid-50s, sunny tomorrow. Sunday's highs in the mid-80s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Sleeping Beauty. On stage now through June 4th at the Citizens Bank Opera House. Tickets at bostonballet.org. Walden Local Meat, partnering with local Northeast farmers to hand-deliver 100% grass-fed, pasture-raised meat right to your door. WaldenLocal.com. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Thank you for joining us today. As the United States comes near to defaulting on its debt, Democrats and Republicans remain far apart on one issue in particular, whether to impose new or tougher work requirements for people on some forms of federal assistance. 
The White House came out strongly against the idea last night, accusing Republicans of trying to take food out of the mouths of hungry Americans. NPR's Jennifer Ludden joins us now. Hey there. There are requirements that already exist for some programs, like food stamps, right? Yes, correct. Uh, Let's start with food stamps. Uh, 40 million people get them. So right now, if you're 18 to 50, you have no children and no dependents and no disability, you have to show you're working 20 hours a week. Um, House Republicans want to raise that age limit to 55 years old. Of course, the details on this or any of the new work requirements could change during negotiations. Another program, families uh, that get cash assistance, what used to be called welfare. Um, This is a tiny group, just about a million families. They are extremely poor. And basically, states currently have to show a certain share of them are working. Under the proposed requirements, the way they calculate that, trust me, it's too complicated to explain, but it would make it even tougher and mean a much higher share needed to work. I spoke with Liz Oltman's Ananat. She's an economist at Barnard College, and she says this is a group that faces a lot of barriers to getting or keeping a job. They've recently had a death in the family. They're dealing with a with a mental health issue. They've had a family breakup. Uh, they've been a victim of domestic violence. A lot of folks in crisis. So Jennifer, both the programs we're talking about, Food stamps and cash assistance have work requirements. What about people on on Medicaid? Because right now that does not have a work requirement, does it? Exactly. This would be new for Medicaid. It would require able-bodied adults without dependents to have some work-related activity for 80 hours a month. Now, where are you going to find that group of people? Uh, Analysts say it is going to be those who signed up for the Medicaid expansion under the Affordable Care Act. And this is because the ACA, Obamacare, allowed able-bodied adults without dependents to get Medicaid for the first time. There have been debates for decades about work requirements. And uh, Republicans uh, often say it's a way to put more people uh, into jobs. Uh, and they note that particularly now it, it might actually help businesses who say they face a labor shortage. Uh, could these two points come together and work? Right. You know, it, it makes sense. Uh, people understand this. I'm sure some people would find work. But there's been a lot of research in the de- decades of this debate. And, you know, it, it shows it's not necessarily going to be the case on a large scale. Uh, there was a real-time experiment. The Trump administration let states impose work requirements for Medicaid, and Arkansas did it for seven months in 2018. Uh, Sharon Parrott is president of the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, and she says in that short time, about a quarter of people subject to those requirements in Arkansas ended up being dropped from Medicaid. There wasn't any increase in employment. If that was the goal, that didn't happen. And of the people who lost coverage, lots of them actually were working or should have been exempt. But the system is just very challenging for a state to implement and for people to navigate. And she says, you know, when people lose health care coverage or other aid, it can really make it harder to get a job. You know, their health might get worse. They might even lose housing. Uh, Final question. Speaker McCarthy says the overall goal of this debt ceiling deal is for the U.S. government to spend less. Would stricter work requirements save money for the government? 
The Congressional Budget Office looked at that question for Medicaid. It found that it would save the federal government a small amount, but some of that cost would then be passed along to states. Um, and here's an interesting thing I learned on cash assistance. Um, states get this money through block grants, and there's lots of other things they can spend it on, right? They have, you know, workforce training programs. They can promote marriage. They can use the money to reduce teen pregnancy. And so if stricter work requirements are imposed, on cash assistance, researchers worry that some states might decide it's just too complicated to give out. They would shut down cash assistance, and states could do that without giving the money back to the federal government. And Pierre's Jennifer Ludden, thanks so much. Thank you. The latest federal census shows that about 1% of this country's households include a same-sex couple. The data is the most comprehensive to date about same-sex couples who live together in the United States, but it does not count LGBTQ plus people who are not cohabiting with partners. And NPR's Hansi Lo Wang explains that could have important ramifications. This new census data comes from a question about household relationships that paints an incomplete portrait of LGBTQ plus people in the U.S. At this point, less than 20 percent of LGBT people live in same-sex couple households. Kareth Conran is a research director of the UCLA School of Law's Williams Institute, which tracks estimates of the country's lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgender populations. That means we don't know a lot about the 80% or more of LGBT people who have different sex partners or aren't living in a household with a partner. And that's significant. And that's also disappointing for Josie Caballero. Do you remember filling out the 2020 census? Uh, I do. Caballero says she reported on the census that she was living in a household with a same-sex partner, but the form was still missing an important checkbox. I was actually newly out trans girl, and I was excited to take it. And I was like, I want to share my experience. And I think the thing that really caught me off guard was there wasn't a space for me to kind of say, this is who I am and this is my identity. That's because unlike the U.S. trans survey that Caballero runs for the National Center for Transgender Equality, the 2020 census did not ask about gender identity. Although there was a question about a person's sex that provided checkboxes for only male and female. There was also no census question that asked directly about sexual orientation. And not having that data makes it harder to get resources for services like mental health programs that many LGBTQ plus people need, says Rebecca Moon, president of the Shoals Diversity Center based in Florence, Alabama. If we can't pull that data and show this is how many of our community exist in the Shoals area, then it's difficult for us to get that funding. The Trump administration blocked efforts to add sexual orientation and gender identity questions to a key Census Bureau survey that's often a testing ground for future census forms. But last year, the Justice Department renewed a request for that type of data, which the department has said is needed to better enforce people's civil rights protections against discrimination at work and in housing. Still, Moon says it's a tricky moment to be pushing for the government to collect this data while anti-LGBTQ plus legislation is on the rise among right-wing politicians. Being given an opportunity to volunteer that information is important. Not everyone is out, especially in the South. There's a lot of LGBTQ hatred. It is illegal for the government to use census data against a person. 
But Josie Caballero of the National Center for Transgender Equality says not feeling comfortable reporting your gender identity is very valid. Still, she points out there is power that could come with being represented on the census. You can't argue with the fact that hundreds of thousands of trans folks have been able to say in a quantitative, scientific way that we exist and this is what it looks like to live here. And Gabriero says those who do choose to be counted as trans, if given the chance on a future census, could make it easier for the next trans person to tell their story. Hansi Wong. NPR News. Time now for StoryCorps' Military Voices Initiative, recording and sharing the stories of service members and their families. Of course, it's Memorial Day weekend, and today we're going to hear from a Vietnam veteran whose job it was to identify casualties of war. Army Lieutenant Colonel Larry Candelaria was deployed to Vietnam in 1970. He was chief of the casualty branch for the 23rd Infantry Combat Division. His team notified families when their loved ones were injured or killed. Every day I had to deal with the wounded, with the missing, those that had died terrible death. I remember there was an invasion to Quezon and uh, it was not going well. Every morning I got ID cards and I went to the mortuary. We had to open the bags and see if we could identify that soldier. The first time I did that, I had to get outside and vomit. I couldn't stop crying. I felt really embarrassed, but you know, when you see an 18-year-old with half of his face gone, it just gets the best of you. I remember one Hispanic soldier and the general was putting the Purple Heart and the Bronze Star for valor on this soldier. He had no legs, no arms. The general was crying, the aide was crying, and I was crying. Just to see him was awful. The general asked him, soldier, what happened to you? He says, general, I jumped on a grenade to save my buddies. And he said, I would do it all over again. Boy, that really knocked me over. When I came back to the United States, I couldn't sleep. I continued to have nightmares of faces of individuals. It was a, an awful job that somebody had to do. We were all in the same foxhole, and we were trying to do good things for soldiers. But it did leave wounds in me. Army Lieutenant Colonel Larry Candelaria in Las Cruces, New Mexico. His interview is archived in the U.S. Library of Congress. And Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 918. Coming up in about 15 minutes, considering the way a concert gives you a way to disappear collectively into song, you'll get a reflection on motherhood, Taylor Swift, and the power of live music. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, the future starts now. Zoo New England, zoo what makes you happy. Discover incredible wildlife and learn about nature at Boston's Franklin Park Zoo and Stone Zoo in Stoneham. ZooNewEngland.org. And UMass Chan Medical School, ranked by U.S. News and World Report as best in New England for primary care education. Learn more at umassmed.edu. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. President Biden says he's very optimistic that he will reach a deal with Republicans to raise the debt ceiling. He spoke to reporters as he left the White House to spend the weekend at Camp David. Major sticking points remain, including a work requirement proposal for social safety net programs. In Texas, members of the state House are set to hold an impeachment vote today against Attorney General Ken Paxton. The vote is scheduled for this afternoon. And the summer travel season is kicking off this Memorial Day weekend. The AAA Auto Club is predicting that more than 42 million Americans will travel 50 miles or more. I'm Giles Snyder. This is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org slash solutions. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Devastating drought, decades of conflict, and a food crisis now leave millions of people suffering in the Horn of Africa. Somalia alone is going through its fifth failed rainy season. Nearly half its population, that's almost 8 million people, face famine. And according to the U.N. humanitarian branch known as OCHA, the Horn of Africa is the center of one of the world's climate emergencies. Daoud Jiran is uh, the Somalia country director for the aid organization Mercy Corps. We've reached him in Nairobi. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for hosting me today. You have recently been in the area. What did you see? When we go around the field, we see families that have lost everything and mothers who are coming to major towns with children who are in a very severe malnourished uh, state, men who have lost their jobs and their livelihoods. And a lot of these people end up in internally displaced camps. So there's a lot of devastation and a lot of uh, people who are weak and uh, really who are facing a very dire situation. Many people have died. Uh, definitely. I mean, the drought has been continuing for five consecutive seasons, and it's estimated that only in 2022, around 43,000 people have died. So, yes, definitely there was the catastrophic effect of, of death as a result of the famine and the drought. What kind of difficult choices have some people had to make to try to stay alive? 
honestly, some of the stories when you talk to these people are heartbreaking. I mean, families who are split, you'll find mothers who have to leave some of their children with the fathers to stay back in where what they know as home and then live with the younger ones. In some cases, people are reporting that some of their you know, family members died on the way, especially children, and they had to just bury them hurriedly and leave. So these are the kind of heartbreaking stories you hear when you talk to these people. And, and some of the decisions they make are really very difficult decisions. Is climate change an important factor? Definitely. We can say climate change is the biggest contributor to the situation the Somali people are currently facing. Somalia doesn't have many industries and honestly it's not a contributor to some of the uh, actions associated with leading to the climate change. But the Somali people are suffering um, the brunt of the climate change. I mean, seasons are becoming shorter. Rains are almost becoming very short or, or, or failing. Um, and over the last two to three years, it has been very severe. And also we have seen to because of the heavy rains that happen in the parts of the Ethiopian highlands, some of the rivers uh, in Somalia getting those overflows, leading to also devastations of flood just after a very long, severe drought. So definitely climate change is really one of the major underlying issues uh, that's affecting these people now. And though Ukraine may be a long way away, has the war there affected delivery of food supplies? Definitely, definitely. I mean, as a result of the Ukraine crisis, uh, we have seen the, the global food uh, prices, especially of cereals and wheat flow, kind of based in foodstuffs going up. And Somalis as a population are very much reliant on this. Also oil prices have gone up, especially the cooking oils. So food prices hikes have really contributed to people not being able to buy the essentials. So definitely the Ukraine crisis has also contributed to the situation. The UN pledged to raise $7 billion for efforts in Somalia, Ethiopia, and Kenya. And I gather they've so far been able to raise just $2.4 billion. Why has this been difficult? Some of the reasons may be the change in the world situations. I mean, the problem in the Horn and in particular places like Somalia are forgotten because of the recent ongoing crisis in areas like Ukraine and, and Syria and maybe the earthquakes in Turkey. But yes, definitely those are also crises that need support. However, I think the situation in Somalia and partly the Horn, Ethiopia and Kenya, I think not need to be forgotten. Some of these um, things that were done recently, including the donor conference, or humanitarian donor conference for the Horn is a welcome gesture. It's something to be applauded and appreciated that some government like the U.S. government was on the forefront to respond. But the reality is more need to be done. The people need more support in terms of uh, building their recovery and building their resilience uh, to be able to cope with the ongoing climatic conditions. Dao Juran is uh, the Somalia country director for the aid organization Mercy Corps. Thank you so much for being with us. You're welcome.
Jeffrey Hinton is known as the godfather of artificial intelligence. He helped create some of the most significant tools in the field. But now he's begun to warn loudly and passionately that the technology may be getting out of hand. Here's Bobby Allen spoke to him about what's driving his crusade. You know a computer scientist is a big deal when Snoop Dogg is talking about him. Here he is at a conference in Beverly Hills earlier this month discussing AI. What is going on? Then I heard the dude that the old dude that created AI is talking about this is not safe because the AI's got their own minds and these <laughs> gonna start doing their own. And I'm like, is we in a movie right now or what? <laughs> the old dude, of course, is Jeffrey Hinton, a 75-year-old British academic living in Toronto who has spent 50 years developing cutting-edge AI, most recently for Google. Okay, can you hear me now? In 2012, Hinton and two of his students at the University of Toronto built what's called a neural network. It's called that because it's a geeky computer system that kind of operates the way a brain works, like the way neurons work. You could feed it tons and tons of data, like photos, and it would learn how to identify, say, a flower from a dog. This breakthrough is the foundation of so many AI tools used in everything from analyzing MRI scans in hospitals to helping farmers understand crop yields and, of course, used in the hit service ChatGPT. But now Hinton has left Google and is sounding the alarm. These things could get more intelligent than us and could decide to take over. And we need to worry now about how we prevent that happening. He came to this position recently after two things happened. First, when he was testing out a chatbot at Google and it appeared to understand a joke he told it. That unsettled him. Secondly, when he realized AI that can outperform humans is actually way closer than he previously thought. I thought for a long time that we were like 30 to 50 years away from that. So I call that far away from something that's got greater, greater general intelligence than a person. Now I think we may be much closer, maybe only five years away from that. Last month, more than 30,000 AI researchers and other academics signed a letter calling for a pause on AI research until the risks to society are better understood. Hinton refused to sign the letter because it didn't make sense to him. The research will happen in China if it doesn't happen here because there's so many benefits of these things, such huge increases in productivity. Now, what do those controls look like? How exactly should AI be regulated? Those are tricky questions that even Hinton doesn't have answers to. But he thinks politicians need to give equal time and money into developing guardrails. Some of his warnings do sound a little bit like doomsday for mankind. There's a serious danger that we'll get things smarter than us fairly soon, and that these things might get bad motives and take control. Hinton isn't talking about a robot invasion of the White House, but more like the ability to create and deploy sophisticated disinformation campaigns that could interfere with elections. This isn't just a science fiction problem. This is a serious problem that's probably going to arrive fairly soon, and politicians need to be thinking about what to do about it now. He says he got a laugh out of the clip of Snoop Dogg talking about his AI warnings. Snoop seems to get it. Hinton hopes that Washington will too. Bobby Allen, NPR News. What a time to say, and now it's time for sports. The Denver Nuggets, golden. The Boston Celtics bounce back, and the Florida Panthers to the Stanley Cup Finals. Howard Bryant of Meadowlark Media joins us. Hi there, Howard. Thanks for being with us. Good morning, Scott. How are you? Fine, thank you. Uh, let's begin with the NBA Eastern Conference Finals, the Boston <laughs> Celtics and the Miami Heat. Miami was ahead, right? 3 nothing. 
But the Celtics have won the last two. 150 teams, our crack researchers have developed, have gone down have gone down 3-0 in playoff series. None have been able to come back. Game six is tonight. Can the Celtics be the first? Well, they can, and this has been an unbelievable week where the Celtics defeat the Philadelphia 76ers and Jason Tatum scores 51 points and the Celtics are suddenly back and favorites to win the title like they were supposed to be. And then suddenly Miami, that was an eight seed, they come in and they beat the Celtics in game one. They beat them in game two. They destroyed them in game three. And everyone is now talking about a teardown in Boston, about firing the coach, Joe Missoula, and breaking up the team. And then suddenly they win game four by 17 points. And then <laughs> yeah. suddenly they win game five. Oh, you don't now... want to get rid of Major. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And so now the Celtics are a game away from forcing a game seven. And I think it's only happened three other times to even get to a game seven of those 150. The Celtics are the better team, but it's such a huge mountain to climb. And on on the one hand, if you're a Miami, you've got to be kind of frightened. But on the other hand, you're like, hey, we've got we've four chances to win one game. It's going to be fascinating tonight down in Miami. Yeah. Uh, Denver Nuggets, of course, in the NBA Finals. First time in their franchise history. They routed the Lakers for zip. And, of course, as soon as that happened, people were going, oh, what does LeBron mean when he says he has to think about this? Oh, I did not like that, Scott Simon. I did not like that one bit because I think that there was a lot of gamesmanship going on there because of the Lakers getting swept the way they did. This moment belongs to the Denver Nuggets. Yeah. The Denver Nuggets came into the NBA in 1977 with the merger. They are the last ABA team to make the NBA Finals. It's been a long time coming. Nikola Jokic is the best player in the game and mm -hmm. a former two-time MVP. And Jamal Murray is back from a horrible knee injury where he lost two seasons. And uh, Michael Porter Jr. is maybe the best three of the of the trio in the in the league and they they were fantastic all season they're they were great in the postseason they're they've played the best so lebron tried to hijack that moment a little bit and i didn't find that uh i thought that was a a little a little bit of a low blow there because denver was absolutely terrific and believe me if if uh if miami wins they're going to have a very difficult time because Denver will have home yeah. court advantage with that altitude up there, and if it and if it's the Celtics and in, if it's the Celtics and it's Denver, then you probably have two of the three best teams in the league going at it. So, but the moment belongs to Denver, and yeah, and it's been so much fun to to see them finish the task because they hadn't for so many years. Yeah, over to hockey, uh, Vegas Golden Knights and the Dallas Stars tonight. Uh, chance to clinch a spot in the Stanley Cup Finals. Another one. We At one point, Scott, we had a 3-0 in all of the series. The first time ever that that had happened. And yeah. now Dallas is off of the mat. They win a game. So it's three games to one. And now Florida is... I'm sorry, not Florida. I'm sorry. And so now Vegas is going to try to close Dallas out and get to the Stanley Cup. And that's an expansion team. Let's not forget. So, yeah. so within five years, they've got a chance to go to the Stanley Cup Final. The Panthers... I mean, let's talk about the Panthers. And then there's the Panthers. The Panthers who... Sweeping who the ice with the everyone, most recently <laughs> exactly. Carolina. Yeah. Another eight seed beat the Boston Bruins, who were the best regular season team in history. 
they're down three games to one. They are 59 seconds away from being knocked out by the Bruins. They score a goal, they win in overtime, and they've run through the postseason ever since. And now they're in the Stanley Cup for the first time since the mid-90s when they lost to Carolina. Unbelievable postseason. And really looking forward to seeing what happens in the NHL as well. Howard Brandt of Meadowlark Media. Thanks so much for being with us. Talk to you Thank soon. Thank you, Scott. And you're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Thanks for getting your weekend started with 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. A lot of Taylor Swift fans are still riding a euphoric high from her three shows last weekend at Gillette Stadium. WBUR commentator Joanna Weiss was in Foxborough with a group of her daughter's friends and their moms. And she says this audio essay goes out to all the Taylor Swift parents. My chosen outfit for the Taylor Swift concert did not pass muster with my 18-year-old daughter. While the pants were fine, bell-bottoms I bought years ago, but my child did not approve of my plaid flannel shirt. I thought it looked country and would be warm. She was not convinced. Instead, she tried to outfit me in a pink spandex shirt roughly the size of a paperback book. When I declined, she pulled out a gigantic fuzzy jacket in cotton candy pink that made me look like a scoop of strawberry ice cream. We were both young when I first saw you. I closed my eyes and the flashback starts. I'm standing there. Scoring seats to the concert of the century was a commitment of time and money, but for those who pulled it off, it was a memory for life. If you got to be with your kid in her happy place, the joy was doubly deep. So how'd we do it? Miracle of miracles, we got into the pre-sale last October. Twelve of us signed up to try. My daughter and her five high school besties scattered at six different colleges and their wistful moms who were imagining a day in May when the girls would be back home again. I've never been more stressed. Log in precisely at 10. Do not, under any circumstances, hit refresh. And whatever else happens, don't click the back browser. Did I hit refresh? Indeed. Did I hit the back browser? You bet. But I made it into the queue, watched the buffer bar inch toward the right. Eureka! Walking through a crowd, the village is aglow. Kaleidoscope of loud heartbeats under coats. We had a concert day plan, of course. We took two cars, one for the girls, another for the moms, and plenty of food for a tailgate. Sandwiches, a ton of carbohydrates, cupcakes adorned with Taylor toothpicks. Cheers, everybody! Thanks for making this happen, girls. Yes, thank you. As we approached a traffic light on Route 1, we spied a police officer stone-faced behind his sunglasses. I thought he must have been having a rotten day. Then I heard him barking at car after car. Why are you not singing over there? <laughs> the music's not loud enough. It's a fun time. Let me hear you sing. Singing. I don't know any of the lyrics, I'll be honest. Sure, there wasn't much singing in the mom's car, but in the girl's car, well, there were ultra-loud versions of Enchanted, Love Story, and Shake It Off. There were selfies and goofy nicknames and inside jokes, a secret language that doesn't fade even when you've been apart for months. Please don't. 
As we walk toward Gillette from our parking spot two miles down the road, our girls' outfits in reputation black and lover-era pink merged with a sea of flowing country dresses and sequin pants. Moms and kids parted once we got to the stadium. We made the best of our nosebleed seats, three rows from the top, behind the stage, as we watched other people's kids in states of bliss. We marveled at how so many of them knew every syllable of every song, from Cruel Summer to You Belong With Me, and sang them all with Taylor, like an echo. I'm happy to report the pink fuzzy jacket served me well as the sun went down. The pockets were big enough to stash my gloves and a beanie hat. And more than once, as I shivered happily, I contemplated the tiny speck of Taylor far below. I wondered how someone crossing a massive catwalk in high-heeled boots and a sequin leotard could possibly perform in the cold for three and a half hours straight. She must have fed off the energy of 70,000 people singing along. Someone said her parents were there, too. Joanna Weiss is a writer and editor. You can read her essay and many more at WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders, movers, and changemakers to close opportunity gaps, advance equity, empower a better Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. And Huntington Theater. Just announced, don't miss artistic director Loretta Greco's first season in Boston. Season ticket packages available now. Learn more at huntingtontheater.org. It is 9.40, and still to come on Weekend Edition, the journalist Rachel Louise Snyder discusses her new coming-of-age memoir. At 10, it's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Keep in mind, you can listen anywhere with the new WBUR app. Tap and listen when and how you want. Download it or update it in your app store now. This is 90.9 WBUR. On last week's Wait, Wait, Adam Burke agreed with those millennials who speak in fake British accents to lower their stress. Adam, you're Irish. I'm sure you're soothed by the sound of a British accent. (laughs) Yeah, I I use it to go to sleep. It's the whitest noise. (laughs) I'm Peter Sagal. Don't drift off when you listen to this week's show from New Orleans with special guest John Goodman. Join us for the News Quiz from NPR. Today at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive. Progressive commercial auto insurance protects the cars, trucks, and vans that work to keep small businesses moving forward, including protection while running errands and other tasks at ProgressiveCommercial.com. And from Staples, with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done, from ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories, More at Staples stores or staples.com. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. From patching jeans to replacing phone screens, more and more Americans are trying to prolong the life of things they own and not just replace them. It's all about being a responsible consumer in the face of climate change. But NPR's Chloe Veltman reports some policies or lack of them can stand in the way. 
Americans are responsible for throwing out more stuff than any other nation in the world. According to the Public Interest Research Group, people in this country generate more than 12% of the planet's trash, though we represent only 4% of the global population. We keep going at this pace and we'll reach the heat death of the Earth in a few hundred years. <laughs> That's Adam Savage. He's the host of Tested, a popular YouTube channel aimed at people who like to make things. Savage's videos often show him picking up stuff he finds lying around on the streets of San Francisco. That is a nice chunk of steel. Maybe I could make something out of it. And he can repair almost anything. The professional tinkerer was busy mending his lathe the day NPR dropped in for an interview. The hulking machine that shapes wood and metal occupies a corner of Savage's cavernous workshop. I am about to pull this whole tailstock apart, remachine a new threaded rod with a finer thread, which then I have to harden and install back in here. Throwing things away comes with an environmental cost. Manufacturing processes and decomposing products in landfills emit significant levels of climate warming pollution. Some materials, like plastic, never decompose. Adam Savage says it's time human beings reminded themselves that throwaway culture is a relatively new phenomenon. It started about 100 years ago with the rise of mass manufacturing. We have been repairers and restorers for millennia longer than we've been profligate thrower-outer of things. Most of us don't have Savage's drive for extreme DIY. Nevertheless, the appetite for fixing things is on the rise in the US and globally. Online how-to videos are getting hundreds of thousands of hits. Here are five things you need to know before you repair your own iPhone. And people are flocking to community repair workshops in cities across the country. Those started to take off here around 2009. What's your name, sir? I'm Daniel. Daniel Leong is among the crowds attending one such event at the San Francisco Public Library. The San Francisco resident has brought in two bikes. His wife's has a flat tire. His son's malfunctioning brakes. We don't know much about repairing bikes. We just ride it every so often. A basic bike tune-up in San Francisco can cost well over $100. Leong says he's a fan of fix-it days because the service is free. But it's about more than the unbeatable price. It also gives us an opportunity to learn more about bicycles and a chance to see how they're fixed. Sean Rosenmoss is a senior environmental specialist with the San Francisco Department of the Environment. Her organization is partnering with the library on fix-it events around the city. We, of course, want to reach as many people as we can and bring them into this environmental climate conversation. She's heartened not only by the public's interest in mending and fixing things, but also by some manufacturers' efforts to promote the repair of their own products, like Patagonia and Levi's. But Rosenmoss says some things, like bikes and clothing, are easier to fix than others, particularly things that contain computer chips. Where devices such as phones, microwave ovens and cars are concerned, Rosenmoss says it'll take more than getting people to watch DIY videos and attend fix-it clinics to save the planet. There's this cultural shift and then there is the policy work that has to be done. They have to go hand in hand. What Rosenmoss means by policy work is legislation that empowers people to fix things themselves or do so through a repair provider of their choice. So-called right-to-repair legislation is focused on getting manufacturers to provide consumers and independent repair companies access to their parts, tools and service information. Gay Gordon Byrne is the executive director of the Repair Association. Her consumer advocacy group has spent more than a decade pushing manufacturers to make it easier for people to fix their products. She says the repair offerings corporations typically provide are either inconvenient or expensive or both. They are not in the business of fixing stuff. 
They would rather your stuff falls apart and dies and you have to go back to the store. Gordon Burns says mounting pressure from groups like hers, as well as the growing interest in fix-it culture, have started to force reluctant manufacturers to make repairs more accessible. Dozens of right-to-repair bills are working their way through the legislative process and have passed in a few states, like New York, where starting later this year, small consumer electronics will have to be repairable by law. So Apple, as an example, will have to be selling parts and tools and providing diagnostic functions that they didn't want to provide. But these bills face stiff opposition. David Edmondson is the Vice President of State Policy and Government Relations for TechNet. The tech sector trade association represents companies like Apple, Google and Toyota. Our concerns are that the bills are going to mandate that manufacturers provide unvetted third parties with uh, sensitive diagnostic information, tools and parts without requiring any of the critical consumer protections that are afforded by authorized repair networks like uh, training and, and competency certification. Edmondson says, nevertheless, manufacturers are listening to their customers. For instance, companies like Apple and Samsung recently expanded their self-repair programs and network of independent service providers. At Fix My Phone SF, a neighborhood electronics repair store in San Francisco, owner Michael Gadea says he's been fixing smartphones since they came on the market around 15 years ago. At the beginning, of course, very difficult to obtain. Uh, now there's much easier, of course. But Gadea says he's seen a dip in his phone repair business over the past year, owing to manufacturers offering ever more tempting deals to customers to trade in their old products for shiny new ones. Kind of still complicated. If you buy your phone, it's your phone, you paid for it, and they should have no right to tell you what to do with it. He says customers always ought to have the power to choose whether and how to repair their stuff. Chloe Veltman, NPR News. Rachel Louise Snyder's new memoir, Women We Buried, Women We Burned, begins with a memory, or is it a vision? She's near the equator on a ship, a semester at sea program, staring up at the sky. It appears to be perfectly split into two, half night, half dawn. Let's ask the author to continue. Science explained the celestial vision I saw that night, but memory makes it a miracle. I wouldn't understand for years still, but that line was a kind of beginning, a reset, a visual demarcation of my own metamorphosis. That line is my origin story. Rachel Louise Snyder, who as a journalist has told stories of survival from around the world, especially in her book on domestic violence, No Visible Bruises, now tells her own life story. And she joins us now. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. You lost your mother to cancer when you were eight. Your father found love pretty quickly. Or something like it. <laughs> well, and and let me just put it this way. It wasn't a loving time for you, was it? No, it was not a loving time for me. Yeah. You would think that losing my mother would be like the big thing. And that was big. But her illness, her cancer had dictated so much of our lives, you know, my brother and I would come home from school and did we have to help her? Did she need help getting out of bed? When she died, we suddenly had this freedom, you know, we could take our little Schwins anywhere, you know. And, um, and then my father met someone at a family camp and 
I think he must have really felt that he was ill-equipped to be a single parent because he married her two months after they, after I recognized that they were hanging around each other. Mm. And the morning of the wedding, my father brings me downstairs to the church. She's in her wedding dress. I'm in a bridesmaid's getup. And my father says, Rachel, meet your new mother. Well, also, I mean, as you write, uh, cancer took my mother, but religion took my life. Your father brought your family into a into a religious community. Yeah. If I may, there just seemed to be a lot of everyday violence that was taken for granted around you. Absolutely. Yeah. I my real mother was Jewish, so and my father was Christian, so. Um, when my mother died, um, my father really went deeply into Christianity and in particular fundamental, fundamentalist evangelical Christianity. And my aunt and uncle had a church in Illinois, a very tiny little church. Um, and they told him that God was speaking through them about him and that he needed to marry this woman and he needed to move us to Illinois and we needed to enroll in this kind of ridiculous, tiny little school where there were five kids in my entire grade. So everything just suddenly changed. And we had never had corporal punishment. I mean, sometimes, I guess, with a wooden spoon, you know, in the 70s, as parents did. But suddenly, punishment became this long, drawn-out, multiple-hour affair that ended with you know, one or the other of us being spanked with my mother's, my real mother's, my dead mother's sorority paddle. But it was really explained and justified through the teachings of the church, which are an extension of, a, of an authoritarian patriarchy that we see all over the world still today. You, um, you were invited to leave school. Um, my aunt and uncle's church school had closed down after my eighth grade year. So I went to public school and I went for two years in theory, but I rarely went to school. And so at the end of my sophomore year, I was invited to leave and not return. <laughs> I was expelled. Um, and then finally, one day in September, 1985, my parents sat us down for a family meeting, which we had often. And they gave us a typed up list of rules, which I still have in my office today, that said, you know, you have to abide by these rules or you will not be able to live here. And the four of us never abided by a single rule, like starting that day, we, we had all just had enough. And so we found ourselves with four suitcases lined up on the foyer and we were told to pick one. And I picked a blue and red Samsonite packed up my stuff, and I lived out of my car for about the next year and a half, sleeping on couches, sleeping on floors. It's very moving to read about that, and it, it, it makes you kind of wonder if despite how tough the circumstances were in which you lived, um, well, no better way to put it than this, if the kindness of strangers didn't didn't also teach you something about the possibilities in life. You know, Scott, that was the, the crazy thing about it is that I had been told by the church that the world was full of nothing but danger 
and darkness out there. And once I got out into that world, I didn't find that to be true at all. It was my first real lesson in how wrong the worldview of my parents was because it was informed by their own ignorance. So you went to sea because a generous relative helped you go to school on this, I got to tell you, sounds like just a wonderful experience. Um, you noticed a similarity with a lot of other students, though, didn't you? Yes, I did. I was an unlikely candidate for college. In my senior year, by then I had really um, gotten my footing, as it were, with school. And my uncle, I had an uncle in New York who found the Semester at Sea program. On that ship, it was about 500 students. One after another, I found kids who had lost one or both parents. It was really startling to me. It was the first time I'd ever met anyone who'd lost a parent. I mean, I was like an oddity growing up. And I really began to wonder if there was some way that we were living differently than other kids. And it had to do with understanding that you have one life through this lens of a great loss. That really got to me. I, I, I wrote down your phrase, we were land masses reordered after disaster. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I'm, I forget what I write and then someone reads it back to me and I think, that's beautiful. Oh, I wrote that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, um, that's what it felt like. It felt like yeah. you shift some emotional shape of yourself. And the thing about losing someone so young, you know, my mother was 30 when she got cancer and then 35 when she died. So I was almost nine when I lost her. And I did not understand what that loss meant and the loss grew bigger as the years went on. So you're at sea looking up into the sky, irresistibly that you, you somehow in one glimpse, you take in the light and dark of the universe, reminding us that life contains both sides. Life contains both sides, but you know, because light bends around the earth, the light actually has more matter than the darkness. And I think it's true at the individual level of a life. It's certainly true of my life. Like getting kicked out of my house seems like the worst thing that could happen. But in fact, it's the thing that that set me on a, a course where I, I really truly freed myself from the forces that were controlling my family. And I, I've had an amazing life. Absolutely unpredictable. Rachel Louise Schneider, her memoir, Women We Buried, Women We Burned. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Scott. It was wonderful to talk to you. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. Next at 10 o'clock, it's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me here on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Walden Local Meat, supporting local food in our communities by hand-delivering local, sustainable meat and seafood right to your door. WaldenLocalMeat.com. Long Hill in Beverly and Stevens Coolidge in North Andover. Revitalize North Shore public gardens and historic homes. Information at thetrustees.org slash gardensrevitalized. And Soaring Hawk Meditation Center, celebrating the present moment with a new exhibit on mindfulness, located in Littleton, Mass. More at SoaringHawkCenter.com. In 1993, then-Secretary of Defense Les Aspen quietly shared a blunt message with the nation's defense contractors, consolidate or close up shop. They acted. The number of aerospace and defense prime contractors shrank from 51 in the 1990s to what we refer today as the Big Five. And they've got more influence over the Pentagon than ever. That's On Point, Monday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.